Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago. I am not joined today by uh, my regular uh, co-host, Rob Hunt, as he is still uh, out of town on spring break with the family. And we hope he's having a great time uh, skiing and doing all the things he likes to get out and do. Uh, and all well-deserved. We will look forward to talking to Rob again soon. And um, in the meantime, we've got a great show for you today. I'm very excited about the Dead Show that we've selected uh, 34 years ago to actually 34 years ago yesterday. Um, they did have a show on the third as well, uh, but the show on the second, I think was better. It's also my mom's birthday. So we're going with that show, the grateful dead, April 2nd, 1989 from the civic center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And let's get it started, Dan. I used to love her, but it's all over now. It's a, uh, a great tune, uh, a staple of dead shows from that era. Uh, always Bobby doing it. Uh, and coincidentally, the song was written by Bobby Womack, along with his sister-in-law, Shirley, first performed by the Valentinos in 1964. Uh, but the dead really made it their own. And it was, as I say, a staple. And we always loved hearing that. Bobby, you having a great time. And how about Brent? Uh, getting in there with a little bit of jazz riffing as he's jamming away on the keyboard. This is a big, big Brent show, as you'll see as we go through. He he makes his presence felt everywhere. Um, unfortunately, you know we're we're starting to get into the uh, the end of the uh, Brent Midland era here. He still has about another year left with uh, with everybody, a little bit more than a year. But um, he's out there wailing, and that's great. A uh, little bit of background about this show, really fast. Pittsburgh has always been a hotbed of Grateful Dead activity. Uh, there's a Darby, uh, uh, was it the theater in Darby, Pennsylvania? Can't think of the name of it off the top of my head. Um, they've played all over the city, and the Civic Center was kind of the uh, the the cookie cutter ice arena where the um, Pittsburgh Penguins played, and uh, they would hold concerts there. And the Grateful Dead were no strangers to that venue as well. Uh, and this was a two night run in April of 1989, April 2nd and April 3rd. As I said, I went with the April 2nd show uh, because I think it stands up a little bit better. Um, and then when we start to get to the next show, uh, well, let me just take an aside here because we are coming to the end of the NCAA basketball tournament in 1989. The Michigan Wolverines won the tournament with a big overtime victory over Seton Hall on April 3rd, 1989. And of course, the dead were playing that night. And then, as it turns out, uh, two nights later, they would uh, open a two-night stand uh, on the 5th and the 6th in Ann Arbor, Michigan at Chrysler Arena, shows that I attended with my wife and my brother Stephen, his first two dead shows. And uh, uh, coincidentally enough, notwithstanding all of my uh, dead shows up to that point, I had never seen the Grateful Dead in Ann Arbor. The last time they had played there was 1979, the year before I started 
We could never get them there while I was in school. Uh, but 1989, they show up in two days before Michigan wins the national tournament. Coincidence? I don't think so. Um, but this was a great run. And so right from Pittsburgh, they were on their way to Ann Arbor and uh, really, really playing strong. But back in Pittsburgh, they had some problems. And this was really kind of the beginning of the end, if you will, uh, at least in the way a lot of touring deadheads felt about it, because this was a show uh, where the deadheads got out of control. Um, and they really uh, teed off with the Pittsburgh police. Uh, there was a rumor uh, that an usher inside the arena was uh, letting people in the back door for 20 or $25 cash. Crowds of people swarmed around there. Uh, eventually, the guy just threw the door open and took off with his money. And, you know, crowds of people were pouring in. The police were trying to control the whole thing. Um, and as we went into the summer of 1989, uh, we had all sorts of instances, uh, some of them uh, more infamous than others, but Deer Creek had a problem and, uh, they had a problem, I think at the show in Ohio and, um, the deadheads, I don't like to say the deadheads, the deadheads never were the problem. The problem was the people who liked to come and show up and just do a lot of partying. And they knew that the deadheads were a great group to go do that with. And as a result, uh, huge, huge, huge numbers of people far larger than the actual capacity of wherever they were playing would show up to take part in this, in this big party. And while on the one hand, yes, it's kind of fun and open and, you know, everybody who wants to come and be peaceful and have a good time is welcome. Uh, on the other hand, there had to be a recognition that the venues and the facilities where the dead were setting up camp uh, weren't always equipped to handle such a large overflow in terms of parking, in terms of facilities, in terms of food and water, and certainly not in terms of security trying to keep the ticketless fans out of the stadium. And it got so bad in Pittsburgh uh, that, you know, we have one of these wonderful moments where an American politician who doesn't really know anything about the Grateful Dead uh, just kind of flies off the cuff based on the news that they're hearing. And in this case, it was Pittsburgh Mayor Sophie Masloff who famously declared, I don't want these deadheaders ever back again, calling the band the Dreadful Dead. Okay, so, you know, that's kind of what as deadheads we were used to at that point in time. Um, and, and two things I'll say about that. Uh, the first is that if you ever went to a dead show, it was probably the most peaceful, mellow, laid back type of place you could ever be. You didn't have big bikers coming in, getting drunk. You didn't have uh, big frat boys coming in and getting drunk and pushing people around. There were no fights. Um, everybody was just kind of stoned or trippy and enjoying the band doing their thing. And there was no time uh, to be uh to be dangerous or unruly or, or hassle the, the cops. Yes, it happened, but that was not uh, the primary focus of where we were at. And if you compare that uh, to so many other bands at the time that were out there playing, uh, where it was a, a rite of passage for people to go and get drunk and pick fights. The Rolling Stones shows were famous for that for years and years. Uh, the presence of the Hells Angels didn't necessarily uh, tamp that down any. But the, the, the dead were a very, very, very mellow, peaceful band, and the audience was the same way. And, but there were so many of us that showed up and in a crowd, you're always going to have bad apples. And there were certainly bad apples in these crowds. There's no doubt about it, but the, the, the politicians would jump in and they, they'd latch onto the one bad apple and paint the whole group with a broad brush. So, uh, in April of 1989, we have mayor Maslow saying that the dead headers will never come back. I don't want the dreadful dead in my town again. And what happened? Well, a year later, uh, right around July 1st, I believe it was, the Deadheaders and the Dreadful Dead were back for a huge show at Three Rivers Stadium, opened by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I was at that show. It was a very peaceful day. It was a wonderful day of music. And interestingly, I did not see Mayor Maslow anywhere that day. 
Um, but I'm sure she and her city gladly accepted all of the wonderful revenue that the dead generated for them uh, when they drew a crowd into Three Rivers Stadium that was probably larger than any crowd a Pittsburgh sports team had ever drawn before. Well, maybe not the uh, Steelers from back in the uh, Super Bowl era, but uh, other than their brief breakthrough in 79, the Pirates were not known uh, as a team that would draw a lot. And uh, the dead Ted's tested out the limits of the stadium. It passed with flying colors. I bumped into my good buddy Jack there, and we had a chance to watch the show together. It was a lot of fun. But let's go back to the show we're talking about today. And it was all uh, part of this 1989 run. And uh, we talked about Brent really kind of going out and flexing his muscles just a little bit. And uh, Dan, if you'll spin the next tune, we, we get a full dose of Brent. flexing his wings there and um how great it is uh what a talent uh, you know you, you read posts and people talk about oh yeah the 80s the brent era not like the good old days and i'll tell you the 80s were my good old days and while uh you know that rob and i are, are huge fans of 73 dead 77 dead 78 dead 72 dead 70 dead uh the late 60s and the primal dead the dead that I experienced was an absolutely amazing band. Now, can I compare them to what it was like when they were playing at the Fox theater in St. Louis and cranking out those wonderful shows? No, because I wasn't there. Uh, so I take the band for what I got when I got them. And yes, there were nights where they were flat and they weren't as strong. Uh, but for the most part, uh, they were sailing right along and they were great. And in the eighties, that's a big, big credit to Brent Midland who really stepped in, breathed a huge breath of fresh air into that band. Uh, and I think really uh, motivated Jerry in a way uh, that he hadn't been motivated in a while. And uh, We Can Run is a, is a great example of that. Um, we've been playing other Brent tunes lately, and we will continue to do so because uh, Brent deserves the credit and he deserves a place among the uh, the dead legends. You know, he may not be a pig pen, um, but you certainly have to put him up there with Keith, I think. Um, and although Vinny is a great talent and really did it too, he never had a chance to really flourish. So um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Brent Midland is as good as it gets with the post-primal uh, Grateful Dead. And uh, I'm very, very happy and very lucky that I got so much of Brent at the shows uh, that I made it to. In the world of music, <laughs> there's just great stories that pile up on top of great stories. And what always amazes me is how many of them uh, seem to really involve the Grateful Dead. And here's what I mean. Uh, thanks to uh, our producer, Dan Humiston, for pulling this out and uh, getting it over to me today so that uh, we could talk about it because sometimes uh, the, the best stories slip by if you're not looking for them. 
So everyone knows that in 1987, uh, Dylan and the Dead toured together. Uh, Dylan, a year or two before, had kind of started a habit of touring being backed by big bands. You know, originally he was, of course, backed by the band. And I believe in 85 or in 86, uh, Dylan was touring with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as his, as his band. Um, and, you know, they would basically be the, the backup. Dylan would be up there, you know, singing his songs and they would be playing his songs, adding some vocals. And of course, Petty being a great guitar pair, player would add his own little touches to it. And they were great. <clears throat> and they were really a lot of fun to see. Uh, they performed really well. And everyone really felt that it energized Dylan in a great way. 1987 rolls around and Dylan's getting ready to tour again. And this time he selects the Grateful Dead. Now, that's interesting for a lot of reasons, um, not to diminish Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and their their place in American music, but in the mid-80s, uh, we're, we're in the um, Touch of Grey era now, because Touch of Grey came out in 86 or 87, so the Grateful Dead were beginning to really max out on their popularity. Year after year, they were the highest uh, grossing touring act. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine or Billboard would always have those articles, and we'd read them that you know, the dead were out drawing almost anybody in a year, maybe when the Rolling Stones toured, the dead might come in second, but otherwise they were top bill everywhere. And, you know, here was Dylan, who I suppose if at that time, if there was anyone in the musical world who could be said to be even a little more senior, a little cooler, a little hipper, a little more to the scene than the Grateful Dead, well, it had to be Bob Dylan. And Dylan reached out to the dead and said, um, you know, you're going to be it. You know, the, the dead were different though. They were kind of loose, jammy. Uh, they wanted to work with a much bigger set list uh, uh, of songs than Petty. And actually uh, this is where it gets great. So Dylan uh, started going out to the uh, uh, Grateful Dead's Front Street Recording Studio in San Rafael, just outside of San Francisco, to start meeting with the, with the dead. And Dylan wrote all about this in his book Chronicles. And he, he said, I thought it would be as easy as jumping rope. After an hour or so, it became clear to me that the band wanted to rehearse more in different songs than I had used to be doing with Tom Petty. They wanted to run all over the songs, the one they liked, the seldom seen ones. I found myself in a peculiar position. I could hear the brakes screeching. If I had known this to begin with, I might not have taken the dates. So let's think about that for a minute. The Grateful Dead, who probably covered Dylan as much, if not more, and certainly as well as anybody out there, used to reach deep into his category, used to like to pull out a catalog, excuse me, pull out songs that as Dylan here himself admits, you know, were not necessarily songs that he had been playing with any frequency or uh, any regularity. Um, if you're familiar with the Dylan and the Dead album from that era, uh, certainly the song Joey leaps to mind um, that they did Slow Train Coming, um, you know, and, and a few others that were on that album that were not songs that uh, Dylan was typically doing in his concerts. But those are the songs that Jerry liked to play and the band liked to play. So what's Dylan saying? He was like, well, wait, this didn't necessarily know what I was getting in for. So he said, uh, Dylan says, I had no feeling for those songs. I didn't know how I could sing them with any intent. Um, a lot of them might have been sung only once, maybe even the time they'd been recorded. There were so many I couldn't tell which was which. I might not even get I might even get the words mixed up with the others. Um, I, I couldn't see how I could get this stuff off emotionally. So. Dylan says, I felt like a goon and didn't want to stick around uh, and that thinking the whole thing might have been a mistake. Uh, so what did he say? He went up to the band and he told them, oh, I left something back at the hotel. I'll be right back. This is Bob Dylan. He steps outside, 
onto Front Street, starts walking, putting his head down against the drizzling rain and says, I wasn't planning on going back. If you have to lie, you should do it quickly and as well as you can. Stop right there. Bob Dylan is walking out on the Grateful Dead and not just walking out on him, not even telling them that he's walking out on them. This is like one of the greatest rockers in history, getting ready to jam with one of the greatest rock bands in history. And he has a an existential crisis over the songs they want to play. And I don't mean that negatively. I think the dead do that to a lot of bands because the songs that they focus on and like to play are not necessarily the song that the original, the songs that the original artists uh, like to focus on. And that's just the way it is. But this is Bob Dylan for God's sakes. And he's so freaked out by the, this, this kind of loose jammy. They're going to do whatever they want style that it was too much for him. So he's, he's walking out on them on a lie and, uh, getting ready to head back to his hotel and said he was set to abandon the tour. But then he got some inspiration. So he was walking up the street, maybe four or five blocks, and he heard sounds of a jazz combo playing. Uh, he walked into the bar and something was calling me to come in, he says. He walked in along the long, narrow bar to where the jazz cats were playing in the back on a raised platform. He got within a few feet of the stage and just stood there, ordered a gin and tonic. So now you know what Bob Dylan likes to drink. Um, and he was watching the uh, the band. He commented on the singer and his style and the songs that they were playing, jazz ballads, stuff like Time on My Hands and Gloomy Sunday. And, he, and Dylan says that the singer he was watching reminded Dylan of Billy Eckstein. He wasn't very forceful, but he didn't have to be. He was relaxed. He sang with natural power. And then Dylan says, suddenly it was out warning. It was like the guy had opened a window to my soul. It was like he was saying, you should do it this way. And all of a sudden, Dylan says, I understood something faster than I ever did before. I could feel how he worked at getting his power, where he was going to get it. And I knew where the power was coming from and it wasn't his voice. He said, I used to do this thing. I'm thinking it was a long time ago. No one ever taught me. This technique was so elemental, so simple. I had forgotten it, Dylan remembered. It was like I had forgotten how to button my own pants and I wondered if I could still do it. Nevertheless, a rejuvenated Dylan turns around, walks back down Front Street, returning to the Grateful Dead's rehearsal hall as if nothing has happened. Went to the hotel, got my stuff, guys. I'm back. Picked up where it left off. Couldn't wait to get started. Um, and he said in the beginning, it was kind of hard. He described it as uh, he, all he could get out was a blood-choked, coughing grunt um, to try and get it to bypass his brain. He said, but eventually he realized that the scheme wasn't sewed up too tight. We need a lot of stitches. I was burning, but I was awake. I grasped the idea. I had to concentrate like mad because I was having to maneuver more than one stratagem at the same time, thanks to the dead. But now I knew I could perform any of these songs uh, without them having to be restricted to the world of words. This was revolutionary. And he said, Dylan was game for any and all songs that the dead were going to throw at him. He played them all with the dead. I never had to think twice about it. Maybe they just dropped something in my drink. Uh, and then he goes back to say he thinks the old jazz player. That's just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful story. Um, it, and, and what I love about it is the dead aren't, isn't the party that redeemed Dylan. Uh, they're the ones that originally uh, caused his self-doubt and caused him to walk out on them, kind of walk away and just say, nah, I'm out of here. I, I'm just going to slink off. Um, but he hears something that triggers it, and then he comes right back, and all of a sudden, you know, he can see where the, who the dead are, where they're coming from, how they want to play, and it all fits together so nicely. And, uh, you know, I like to think that that's just who the dead were. You know, they forced people to kind of challenge themselves if you wanted to play with the Grateful Dead because you just never knew where they were going to go. Or more to the point, you knew where they were going to go, but you didn't know how they were going to get there. And it's wonderful 
that at the end of the day, Bob Dylan uh, kind of had this moment of, of, of uh, light where he was able to kind of pull it all together and think of all the wonderful music we would have missed had they not toured in 1987 like they did. Um, and millions and millions of Deadhead fans and Dylan fans out there, well, I don't know about millions, but certainly a lot of them are, are, are very happy uh, that not only did Dylan pull it back together, but he had the fortitude to walk back down, join up with the dead, and go out and, and, and make some beautiful music. Um, so yes, of course, if we're talking about Bob Dylan uh, and we're talking about the Grateful Dead, this is a perfect time to segue right back into our third song clip here and uh, the dead playing Dylan. At your feet to convince you of your name Trying to prove that your conclusions should be more drastic Won't you come see me, Green Jay? Won't you come see me, Green Jay? Jane Approximately, also from Highway 61 Revisited. Uh, what a great song. Um, and, and Bobby just plays it with gusto. You know, it, was, it was one of a, uh, uh, a few different songs. That one, Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again, When I Paint My Masterpiece. Uh, were part of a three or four song Dylan Circle that Bobby at this time was always playing right around the middle of the first set. Again, it was a great introduction for those of us that weren't yet Dylan fans or hardcore Dylan fans to all of these wonderful Dylan tunes that got me circling back and, and really getting into him and getting into him and his songs. And Queen Jane approximately is just one of those. I, I know it probably has some deep Dylan intended meaning. I have no idea what it is, uh, but I do know that when Bobby sang it, he sang it really well. And it was always very, very well received by the deadheads, um, you know, who appreciated uh, the effort and who appreciated uh, the dead covering, you know, maybe the greatest, a rock and roll mu individual musician uh, of all time uh, who amazingly is still out there doing his thing today. So uh, that's our Dylan connection. Uh, and one other thing is <laughs> I hope you guys heard Brent's keyboards in there. As I say, this was a strong Brent night and he was really all over the place. And so, you know, this is a Dylan tune. Uh, it's a Bobby number. He's kind of in the spotlight. And as they kind of circle through all the mus musicians during the jams, having a chance to really play it out, Brent just rises to the top. Now, after the next verse, then they go into a really good Jerry jam. And, and we've heard a lot of great Jerry Garcia guitar solos and uh, with Dylan tunes and all of that. But boy, just the, the whole, again, the whole extra level of energy and beautiful creativity that Brent brought to that scene and how he really took those Dylan songs and enhanced them uh, in a Brent way to just make them wonderful and, uh, and so much fun to hear. Let's turn to marijuana for a few minutes. Uh, we are the Deadhead Cannabis Show, and uh, there's some, actually, mostly some really good things going on in uh, the marijuana world today. And let's start off with this. Congressman Earl Blumenauer from Ohio, or excuse me, Oregon, uh, told the um, 
Department of Health and Human Services, that he thinks that the, uh, that the federal government is hopelessly out of step uh, with the American public on marijuana legalization. Um, he said that the American public overwhelmingly supports ending cannabis prohibition, pointing to the fact that a majority of states have legalized marijuana in some form over the past several decades. The House and Ways and Me- House Ways and Means Committee, Congressional Cannabis Caucus, to which Earl Blumenauer belongs, uh, was speaking to Xavier Becerra, the head of the Health and Human Services uh, Division, uh, and pointing out these issues to him. And Blumenauer went on to say, "I welcome the president's Biden's call to do a reappraisal of how we characterize this, so we can have the federal government catch up with where the American people are." as it deals with the reality of cannabis. And I look forward to working with you, Blumenauer, Blumenauer said to uh, Becerra. Now, Becerra didn't adri- directly address Blumenauer's remarks during the hearing, uh, but the health official said in an interview last week that his department will be taking into account shifts in what marijuana means to Americans over the last several decades as part of the cannabis review. This is important because it was pointed out that there weren't any states where marijuana was legal for purpose for any purpose until 1996. And now there's 37 states with medical cannabis and 21 where it's also legal for adult use, obviously some overlap there. And polling shows that support for ending cannabis prohibition together hovered around 20 to 30% of the early nineties, whereas now it's almost 70% backing full legalization. Folks, I don't think there is an issue out there in the United States today on which the uh, American public as a whole is so strongly behind. 70% are fine with legalization. Uh, so Becerra said last week he's aware that there is significant public interest in the timeline for the administrative review, but government, 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 there are a few hoops we need to jump through before completing that assessment. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration uh, under the Health and Human Services uh, needs to complete its part of the review process. Uh, and several Biden administration officials have now used the word expeditiously, uh, but they've declined to provide a, spe- a specific timeline. Now, with the uh, Food and Drug Administration, look, we know how they work. We've already talked about this with CBD, right? They discover it on their doorstep and act like they've never seen it before and ignore 50 years of medical research to pretend like they're the first ones who have ever looked at it. So if we're really sitting around waiting for the FDA, uh, that could take wherever that could take forever. Now, when he, when he was asked specifically when Health and Human Services whether it would make its decision by April 20th, Becerra laughed, apparently uh, getting in on the 420 joke, and all he said was, "I know we're moving to try. I know we're going to try to move quickly." That's not the strongest endorsement that they're going to be coming out and really lighting a fire under this thing and getting to it. But on the other hand, I guess it's better than nothing. And, you know, he, he says they got to go hoops and hoops. Safety and e- efficacy are what will drive this determination. So stay tuned. Good. But guess what? Safety and efficacy have already been determined a long, long time ago. You know, we've talked about this before. We have medical studies that show what's going on and show that marijuana uh, is safer than nicotine. It's safer than tobacco. It's safer than alcohol. It's safer than so many other things that are out there. And yet we treat marijuana, you know, as the um, the bad guy in all of this, as the as the substance that we really need to be afraid of, and you know we have to make sure we're safe. Well, we are safe. We are safe. And if you've ever gone to a dead show and seen all the people that are getting stoned, and then they all go home, and then they all show up the next night, and they all get stoned, and then the next day they all go to work, and they do that until the dead come back, and then they go again. And I'm not saying that there's not people in the world who have maybe had a negative reaction to marijuana. Everybody's allergic to something. 
But when you're looking at it overall, there's just no question. And when you want to talk about efficacy, uh, this is a direct shot at our little Schedule 1 myth here, right? Marijuana Schedule 1, it has no known medical uses, which is a lie. And it was a lie at the time that Schedule 1 and mar the marijuana was put on Schedule 1. To, to suggest that these are things that still need to be discovered uh, is disingenuous and maybe even dishonest to some degree. And, you know, there, there really should be nothing holding up everything at this stage of the game. And we're really at a point where this just needs to go forward. Um, it just needs to get done. Uh, Biden's scheduling directive represents an opportunity to make honest assessments of the origins and implications of federal policy, adding that marijuana was scheduled based on stigma, not science. And it's time to address marijuana's existing reality as a state regulated substance. What a great statement by this guy. I mean, really, he's, he's hitting the nail right on the head. It's safe. The American people uh, uh, really like it. And don't, I, hey, guys, we need to go back for a minute here, says Blumenauer, and we need to find out why it was even put on schedule one in the first place. What was the government's real intent? Not to protect people from marijuana, not at all. Um, and, and good for him, good for an American politician on the U.S. Senate level calling this out in a meeting uh, with a head administration official uh, and kind of really throwing the issue at them uh, as directly and bluntly as they can uh, without really giving them a whole lot of room to wiggle out. Now, there could be a lot of things that are motivating this little move right now. Um, and of course, not the least of them is we see that 70 plus percent uh, of Americans uh, approve of marijuana legalization. Uh, we've looked at the numbers of sales of marijuana products and uh, how Americans uh, love it and, and, and can't get enough of it. We've talked about its, its efficacy when compared to alcohol or tobacco or uh, caffeine or any of the other substances out there that cause people to miss more days of work far more days uh, than are missed because of uh, uh, marijuana use. And of course, the factor that most of those other substances when used to excess will kill you and marijuana won't. But we keep finding more and more stories, right? We talked about how teenage smoking is going down. We talk about how uh, traffic fatality, fatalities go down and overall driving is safer, not because it's safe to drive on marijuana, but because it's safer to drive when you're high than when you're drunk. And if you can get people to stop drinking alcohol and to start smoking marijuana, then we will have fewer fatalities because the driving, although still not perfect, will be a lot safer than it was when people were all drunk. But in this country, the testing ground for things, not unlike other countries, often seems to be the military. What is the military doing? How does the military handle this? And lo and behold, we have an article uh, that quotes the, the uh, Department of Defense saying that marijuana's active ingredient, Delta 9 THC, is the most common substance that appears on positive drug tests for active duty military service members. That's amazing. That is amazing more than anything else out there that they could be getting their hands on. Why? Because people in the military have been smoking marijuana forever. It's kind of a, a sad joke about uh, uh, Americans in the Vietnam War sitting around getting stoned, tripping on acid and doing all that. Although I would argue that anyone who was thrown into a foxhole in the Vietnam War would be doing the exact same thing uh, and just as much, if not more. But soldiers have certain responsibilities. They have to be places at certain times. They have to perform in certain ways. They have to protect this country. They have to protect one another. It, these guys are professionals. And I would 
never been in the military myself, so I'm only going to speak from ignorance here. But ignorance and, you know, what I would like to think is, is a little bit of common sense. If you know you're going to get thrown out into a situation where your very survival and the survival of, of your comrades and maybe the survival of your countrymen depend on your ability to perform, on a certain level, it's very reassuring to see that the product that they have all picked to relax with is marijuana. Um, it's, it, we, again, one of the safest things out there. Uh, it doesn't make you uh, overly aggressive. And, and I would suggest that in a time of war, having a really drunk, overly aggressive person is not the right answer. Um, you probably want somebody who's a little more uh, capable of being able to assess the situation around them and acting in a way uh, that takes into account their training and what's best uh, for everybody else. But the Department of Defense said that in fiscal year 2021, Delta 9 THC, the most well-known intoxicant cannabinoid, was the most prevalent drug for active duty service members, accounting for 73.4% of all unique drug positive active duty service member tests at that period of time. Now that's followed by Delta 8 THC, which we've talked about is uh, a naturally occurring cannabinoid in hemp and therefore legal, even though it can produce a, a small but noticeable buzz. And now everybody's all aghast that when they passed the uh, farm bill and all of its constituent cannabinoids and made them all 100% legal, oh, that nobody told us that Delta 9 had TH or Delta 8 had THC, except that the standard you guys adopt said that hemp could have 0.3% THC in it. But nevertheless, so the, the top two things, because this showed up in 42.7% of drug tests, the, the top two substances are marijuana and CBD. Surprise? Of course not. Not at all. It, it's uh, exactly what we would expect from this uh, based on what we know about drugs. Cocaine was detected in 14.4% of drug tests. Fentanyl and um, metabolite non-fentanyl, nor, excuse me, norfentanyl was only identified in 2.5% of screenings combined. Now, maybe it's a question of availability. Maybe it's a lot of other things. Um, but to begin with, nobody's allowed to use drugs in the military. So if you're going to take a chance, you know, you're putting yourself out there. And again, uh, at least I'm happy to see that for those service uh, members um, who, who look for uh, some type of intoxicant to help them with the, the stress or the pain or whatever they're dealing with as a result of their service, uh, that marijuana uh, seems to be the go-to uh, uh, drug. But again, there's such a lack of understanding in terms of what's going on here. Everybody knows that this is the case, but they also know that marijuana stays in your blood system a lot longer. So it's, it's very possible that these tests may not be entirely accurate depending on the point in time when they test people. But of course, it raises the issue with marijuana again, the one we've always talked about, which is presence versus impairment. Sure, it's present, but the fact that it's present does not mean that the person is impaired, which is probably why, again, so many service people feel comfortable going to marijuana because they know uh, that if they smoke marijuana one evening, by the next day, they're good to go again. They're not going to be impaired. If you go out on a bender and had a lot to drink, you may not be able to get out of bed, let alone go on a five-mile hike or do whatever the hell uh, your, your, your sergeant makes you do. Um, so, you know, this is the direction that they go. But the government... Um, Last year, the DOD put out a notice expressing concern that even using CBD-infused products like hand sanitizer or hemp granola could inadvertently comp compromise military readiness, and so they're off limits. 
now this is just stupid. This is the, the, the military seeing something. And instead of saying to themselves, hmm, I wonder why so many of our people are using this product instead of something else. They make a stupid statement that, that if you use CBD infused hemp sanitizer, it's going to somehow apparently get you stoned or put you in a state of mind where you're not militarily ready to perform. Okay, that's something that they're going to have to work out themselves and uh, they're just going to have to figure it out. The Air Force uh, is getting into it. They've granted far more marijuana waivers to recruits than other things when they were launching uh, certain pilot programs. Now, that doesn't mean that you can test positive once you're in the service in the Air Force, but it does mean uh, that if you test positive at, at the time that you applied to join the Air Force, they give you 90 days to get yourself clean, and then they let you come back and test again. So I guess the good news is they don't automatically disqualify you as a degenerate, uh, even though they do make you uh, go back and follow the silly rules such as it is. The Navy has a policy where sailors are barred from using CBD and hemp products no matter their legality. They've even tried to justify their position. Coast Guard says that sailors can't use marijuana or visit state legal dispensaries. Okay, well, you know, there's a difference between marijuana and uh, CBD. I understand that, but nevertheless, it's it's just so important uh, that we have to know what's going on. So what do we have now is a joint explanatory statement that was attached to a large-scale congressional defense bill that was enacted last year, contains a directive for the military to examine the potential of plant-based therapies like cannabis and certain psychedelics uh, for service members. Thank God the U.S. Senate Committee approved a bipartisan bill last month to promote marijuana research for military veterans, becoming the first piece of standalone cannabis legislation ever to advance through a committee in the chamber. Good. Good for them. Let's throw out this other nonsense that everybody can't seem to get right and recognize um, that, that this is what we're going to do. And on the same line, applauding the federal government for a minute, the U.S. Justice Department just announced that they are launching applications for certificate of pardon for simple possession offenses. Now, we know that last year, uh, President Biden uh, came out with a statement saying uh, that they were going to grant official pardons to anyone who had been convicted convicted under U.S. law of simple possession. There's not a lot of people arrested for simple possession, um, but nevertheless, it must be about 20,000 because now using this new program uh, that was just established, uh, they launched an application to receive a certificate of pardon for federal convictions of simple marijuana possession that occurred on or before October 6, 2022. The application will enable 6,500 uh, to 20,000 Americans to apply for written proof that their federal convictions have been pardoned. Uh, this is significant. It's a step in the right direction for cannabis reform. Uh, and we're no longer ruining people's lives over simple possession issues like we were before. So uh, good for the federal government, uh, baby steps, but at least they're doing what they need to do. Um, and so we're very, very happy about that. Um, we'll get into more marijuana in a minute. I want to dive right back into this show, though, because we have so many good songs. Uh, we get to another late first set song here, Tennessee Jed, always one of my favorites. And I will tell you that for 1989, I think this is really one of the best Tennessee Jeds out there. Let us win. Let us get back. 
Well, we may not always like Tennessee and the way their government works and some of the things they say and do, uh, like the guy who said after the tragic recent shooting that, uh, nope, there is no cure for this. We're just going to have to live with it. But I digress, and I don't want to get into politics. That's a great Tennessee Jed. Um, and, you know, hats off to the people of Tennessee, because obviously uh, the dead love you guys enough that uh, uh, they play this song with regularity, um, and they always did throughout their touring years. And it was always just one of those songs. It's very distinctive right at the beginning, and it's kind of like Jerry's just going to lay it out for you, folks. Sit back and enjoy. Uh, and he does, and he does it in a great way. I heard people who saw the dead a lot in, in the mid to late seventies sometimes say that they found that the dead were a little flat when they played this tune. And I've gone back and listened to some of those shows and it, maybe that's the case, but maybe it's because there were so many other dynamic tunes they were playing around it. Uh, but I, I can concede that if you're there on a night where Jerry's a little bit slow, if his voice isn't really working so great, if he doesn't have the same bounce in his step, uh, Tennessee can kind of slog, Tennessee Jet can kind of slog down a little bit. But I think that uh, for the most part, when Jerry plays it, uh, he just has a good time telling the story and, uh, and and really rips into it. So if you, if you have a chance to download this show, archive.org, I would definitely go for it because this is this is a great show and, and you should really focus on this tune and, and one or two others that we're going to play for you here before we, before we check out at the end of this show. But it was just a sign of the dead doing their thing and really performing in a way that they wanted to perform. Um, we are the Deadhead Cannabis Show and I understand and appreciate all of that, but I do want to take a minute here and I want to also acknowledge that... Um, we just recently passed a milestone, which is the 50th anniversary of one of the greatest selling albums of all time, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. It was released, I believe, on March 1st, 1973. Um, for many of us, it was one of the really first kind of exploratory, you know, hardcore rock pot acid type albums uh, that any of us ever heard. We all got hooked on Money, which was the one song on the album that was regularly played on standard FM radio. Um, and it, we all ran out. We all bought it. Every one of my friends had Dark Side of the Moon. When I traveled to Israel in 1979 with a youth group, the, all the people we visited, we'd go to their houses and they all had copies of Dark Side of the Moon. People in Europe all had copies of Dark Side of the Moon. It's just one of those absolute uh, classic albums. It was the, the best-selling album of the 70s. The fourth best-selling album all time, over 41 million worldwide sales. Uh, it's supposed to be a concept album focusing on the band's pressure regarding the arduous lifestyle uh, of a rock and roll band. It went platinum 14 times uh, in the United Kingdom. And here's a statistic you don't hear very often. It charted on the Billboard Top 200 for almost 20 years consecutively. That's an album. That's a popular album. That's an album that how many people go out and buy an album, for God's sakes, and people are still buying it. Um, and while sometimes these days um, some of us may have issues with some of the members of uh, Pink Floyd, or the former members of Pink Floyd, uh, and some of their political views, uh, music is music. And I can go back and put on Pink Floyd, uh, and I get right to that same happy place, uh, notwithstanding anything Roger Waters may be saying these days. Um, and I have no problem giving Dark Side of the Moon and the entire Pink Floyd catalog all of the due that it deserves, all of the impact that it's had on, uh, on rock and roll music, on music in general, on the lives of so many people uh, who heard it and just 
enjoyed it so much and uh, took so many positive things out of it and, and moved on to bigger and better rock and roll experiences. But uh, it, it is one of those albums and it's, it's iconic prism cover with the, the beam of light coming in and then going out in all the colors of the, of the prism and, on the off chance that there's anyone out here who's listening to this show, and I would find this hard to believe, who's never listened to the full Dark Side of the Moon album, put it on, just listen to it from front to end. I would very much recommend being stoned at the time you do it or being stoned while you're doing it because um, it will take you to amazing places and it never fails, uh, uh, even for me, even after 50 years. And I guess it's kind of hard to believe that it's been 50 years and that I've been, I'm old enough to know that all, but Time marches on, and thank God the music has been there with me during this time, and that I've uh, been lucky enough to be able to enjoy it um, in the way I have. Uh, now, quickly back to some Grateful Dead here again, because uh, this show is just too good to stay away from, and this next clip probably is the best song in this entire show, and I've talked to a number of deadheads who think this is the best version of going down the road feeling bad in 1989, and maybe even over a couple of years, so let's listen and see what you think. time favorite songs to hear the Grateful Dead play, always credited as traditional arranged by the Grateful Dead. Um, but w and when paired with um, uh, Not Fade Away, as it, certainly in the, uh, we talked about in the 1970s, what a great pairing those two songs made on the Skull and Roses album is, a, is an excellent example of it. If you want to really get the full impact of the dead jamming on both of those just tremendous, tremendous tunes. Um, and this night, when you listen to the entire version of it, it, it just moves you. You can hear the audience cheering. And I think that one of the reasons is, I think on most nights, the Grateful Dead were there musically. Certainly some nights were better than others. But I think where they sometimes were a little bit lacking was in the energy that they showed on their stage presence and, and primarily when they're singing. And you can hear here how sharp and tight Jerry's voice is and how he's, he's punctuating those syllables as he's singing the song. And, you know, he's right on top of his game here, both musically, vocally, uh, and the crowd appreciates it and, and gives him the due to which uh, uh, he and his group are, are, are so very well entitled and, and that we, uh, we applaud them. Um, before we wrap up, I want to give a, uh, a quick rundown of where things stand in the United States on uh, marijuana, because there's a number of states that are moving out there uh, that have uh, issues being considered by the state legislature or where they're going to get ready to vote on it. And so let's just do a quick rundown, uh, just so people know what's happening in case you're listening in one of these states. Delaware, 
Uh, the Senate has approved adult use and it's been sent uh, to the governor for signature. That's John Carney, a Democrat. Now, interestingly, Carney uh, previously vetoed a, uh, a prior uh, adult use bill that was passed by the Delaware legislature. And at the time, uh, he expressed concern because he wanted to know what its impact would be on young people and highway safety. Hey, Governor Carney, guess what? We just had listened to our podcast. We've had two or three shows where we've talked about that when in states where marijuana has been made legal under adult use, teenage smoking goes down. So what's the impact on young people? They're smoking less of it. Okay. Or the effect on young people is they're smoking marijuana instead of drinking alcohol. So they don't have to worry about waking up the next morning. And as far as highway safety goes, really, do you read the studies that are out there that all show the number of traffic fatalities that have gone down, the number of uh, DUIs and everything that have all gone down? Because again, we don't advocate driving on marijuana when you're high, but if you're high, you're safer, a better driver than when you're drunk. And in this country, as we replace drunk drivers with stone drivers, the numbers of accidents go down, the number of traffic fatalities go down. And don't be fooled when they say that all these drivers have marijuana in their system, presence versus impairment. They never tell you that they smoked the joint two weeks ago. All they tell you is there was there was THC that was found in there. So Governor Carney, get with the program, learn your stuff, and let the good people of Delaware have their marijuana. Now, interestingly enough, in Kentucky, it's the governor urging the voters to put pressure on the lawmakers to pass a medical marijuana bill later this week. That's Democratic Governor Andy Bashir, um, who I really, really like, not just because he got elected as governor of Kentucky as a Democrat, but because he's got very sensible policies. And he's he's really speaking here to the fact that the people of his state enjoy cannabis, that there are medical people for whom it could be a benefit. And apparently the legislature's not listening to him. So he's reaching out to the people and saying, call your elected official and tell them that this is what you want him to do. And of course that he's saying that because he's a smart guy. This is the way it should be. And there's no reason to be screwing around with this any longer than necessary, especially on the medical front. Can we all just agree that even if you want to screw around with adult use for a little while, we're going to let medical go through so that the people who really need it can have it and use it. In Maryland, senators approved marijuana sales bill as the state prepares for legalization this summer. So bully bully for Maryland, and that's going to be great uh, as they move forward. And hopefully once they're legal, um, the uh, our, our friends in the uh, United States Senate will ease up on the District of Columbia and let them run their little uh, town the way that they want to do things. Uh, New Hampshire, lawmakers have sent a marijuana bill to the House floor a second time <clears throat> with new amendments. This one is sponsored by a couple of Democratic lawmakers, and they're working on fiscal provisions that already passed once but was sent to their House Ways and Means Committee, now sent back. And now the House Ways and Means Committee has approved the additional changes by a 16 to 4 vote. Um, And guess what, folks? In New Hampshire, adult use is going to have a four-ounce limit. Most of the states around that I know have a one-ounce limit. Uh, uh, New Hampshire's not screwing around for adult use, we're talking. Medical typically tends to have higher higher limits. But God love New Hampshire, a four-ounce limit. So that's a great thing. And get a load of this. North Dakota, the governor there, uh, Doug Bergman, uh, Doug, excuse me, Doug Burgum, a Republican, uh, he signed a bill letting people, uh, citizens of North Dakota who are in hospice care self-certify as medical marijuana patients and that proof of admission to hospice care is sufficient uh, for a patient to be recognized as a medical marijuana patient and caregivers to these people are no longer delayed 
uh, in getting their licenses by background checks. <clears throat> in a very, very conservative state, the governor has recognized the eff- efficacy, you listening federal government, and the healing, uh, not the healing, or the healing and the palliative uh, use of medical marijuana and is saying, let's get it to the people who need it now. No farting around in the legislature. Let's move on this. We got to get it done. And they are. Finally, let's go back down to the South, the wonderful state of Alabama, which has a great football team, not as good of a basketball team as they think. But in Alabama, possession of marijuana, even in the smallest amount, can lead to a cascading series of personal crises, arrest, taking a ride in the police car, booking a night or more in jail, at a minimum waiting for a bail hearing, and upon conviction, a year in jail and $15,000. This is for possession of a joint of marijuana in Alabama. So we know about things in the South, but in reality, um, in a state that still jails its residents for this simple possession, um, some of the communities are pushing back. And uh, they've already done it in Tuscaloosa, but now in um, Montgomery, which is the capital of Alabama, we're seeing that, um, and, and by the way, it's a city that does have a very high percentage of its population that are people of color, um, and they're examining ways to make the encounters with the police less painful. And this is all being uh, sponsored by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And just a quick plug for them, if you don't know who they are, check them out online. If you're not contributing to them, start contributing. The Southern Poverty Law Center is an amazing, amazing group. They stand up for so many things that are right in this country and back people who otherwise don't have people to speak for them. I cannot recommend them enough. Um, And they are involved in this and they're advocating for a policy change that would make it possible for police in the city to write a ticket for a charge of misdemeanor possession instead of making an arrest for marijuana. And as we said, uh, Tuscaloosa has done this. Huntsville has done this. um, And they're just going to treat it like misdemeanors, like a speeding ticket or running a red light. Hey, by the way, they were doing that in Ann Arbor in the early 1980s. Five dollars is fine with me. People who are charged with this crime can go back to work. They can go back to their school. They can go back to their family because they haven't been arrested. They haven't been thrown in jail. There's not a picture of them in the local newspaper. And of course, by no surprise, uh, in Tuscaloosa, we have seen that black men have been disproportionately imprisoned in Alabama for even recreational use of drugs. Uh, in in uh, one of the representative districts, they state that over, it's over 75% black and that their community has been impacted by this. We know that these people should not have to get arrested. We know that this will save the city dollars. We know this will make prisons less crowded. We know this will save law enforcement time and effort. So we do what we need to do. Let's do it and get police on the street solving real crimes. If you told me I'd hear that out of the state of Alabama, I would have told you you were a liar. But it just goes to show that even when you're in a Southern, strike that, I shouldn't say Southern, although a lot of them are. (laughs) But when you're in a red state with a mayor who's about as red as it gets, Sometimes it takes local politicians, the people who are actually have day-to-day contact with the population, who hear about the struggles, who know about the problems, who see the issues out there in a way that governors don't always see, and good for these cities for pushing for this and setting it up uh, so that when you're in a state where you can get arrested and go to jail for up to a year for possession of a joint, uh, if you're in the right cities, um, you, you know, hopefully you don't have to face those very difficult tasks. So we'll see if that can be uh, captured in other places too. So overall, I would say a good day for marijuana, a good day for the Grateful Dead. Hats off to Pink Floyd. Um, And uh, another fun show for us. I hope you've enjoyed spending time with me this afternoon. 
Um, please remember that when you're listening to this on Monday, April 3rd, 2023, it was only 34 years ago that my Michigan Wolverines beat Seton Hall, as my good friend Casey would call them, America's dorm team in overtime. Rumiel Robinson, the all-time Michigan legend, hitting two key free throws in overtime. It was a great moment. Go Blue. Sorry if you're not a Michigan fan, but I am, and it's my show. So that's it. We will talk to you all again next week. Uh, we have more great stuff coming down the line. In a week or two, I'm going to be joined by Bob Hoban, uh, one of the leading cannabis attorneys out there, and uh, a guy who I can say is probably as big of a deadhead, if not bigger, uh, than both Rob and I. So we'll be talking, looking forward to talking with him. Our good friend, the uh, deadhead bicyclist, is coming back soon, and he's going to have another show uh, that he likes and has been looking at lyrics for us, Stu Salo. So we're very excited to get him as well. Um, but in the meantime, uh, as we head out the door here, uh, I'm going to leave you with the song that was uh, the encore for so many of my early years with the Grateful Dead, an encore tune that when you heard it, yeah, you were a little bit sad because you knew the show was over, but it was like the Grateful Dead wrapping you up in a warm blanket and sending you out on a cold night and nothing was better. So as we head into It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, uh, everyone have a great week. Enjoy yourselves and please enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. Standing in the clothes that you once wore listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.